In 2016, I was lucky enough to visit Greenland, and this had been a lifetime ambition for me. We landed in Tazimir Fjord in mid-July, ready for a month of climbing and exploring. Our first objective was a line on Nalumasatok, a peak around 10 kilometres and 1,500 metres of ascent from base camp. At 7am the morning after we'd landed, we set off with a week's worth of supplies and made the difficult hike up the south side of the river valley leading to the glacier. The first day was horrendous. The black fly don't bite, but they swarm around you in choking clouds. The mosquitoes do bite, and they bite through clothing. There was no path, and we stumbled over blocks and through the dwarf trees in the valley floor, never able to see where we were going and being eaten alive. We stopped in a spot where the breeze carried down from the glacier dispelled the bugs for a minute, and with trousers off and our oversized bags on our head, we waded through the glacial melt and started up the rocky slopes to the moraine and the glacier itself. Thankfully, this high up the mosquitoes left us, but it had taken nearly eight hours to cover the ten kilometres to our advanced base. We found a spot to camp for the night, exhausted and demoralised, and made a plan for the following day. At 4.30am we set off, feet crunching in the crisp snow of the morning, and made it to the foot of the 800 metre wall. The first two pitches climbed well, a solid hand crack and a good slab led to a bolted belay. The hauling was tricky on the slab and the bag kept catching on everything on the way. In hauling it free from one flake, one of the bolts in the anchor ripped straight out of the wall. We made it a little higher up the route, but we were too slow and exhausted, and we ran away tails between our legs, completely overawed by the scale and complexity of this place. I've been intimidated in climbing plenty of times, but never in such a way that I just felt I didn't belong there. A few days later, we had reined in our plans and tried something a little easier. A line on the Kettle Pyramid which looked over our base camp. It was a four-hour ascent up the steep slopes to a constructed flat, tent-sized ledge that we could sleep on underneath the wall. The first route went well, 400 metres of climbing up to E1 and an abseil descent from the spectacular summit. The following day, we repeated a Slovenian route on the other side of the prow, climbing up rubble for several pitches to reach the ever-improving rock and groove lines with a steep crack and a complex traverse into a bold slab and back to the same rocky peak. On the descent that day, with the sun setting over the hills on the other side of the fjord, the light raced up the peaks in this small valley. Ula Matorsawak, the giant 1,200-metre face overlooking the base camp, is a golden barrel of a peak in this light. Nalu Masatok was at the far end of the valley and looked far less foreboding from this height. Its giant open-book corner perfectly concentrates the evening sun. We could see our base camp near the glacial mound at the mouth of the small river. A few hours and we'd be there. I plugged my headphones in for the descent. It's a monotonous thousand metre scrub and scree slope. As I descended, a song came on, which perfectly matched my mood, and a wave of euphoria washed over me. It was a strangely deep sensation. I'm not someone who easily feels joy. Very rarely in an excited way. Contentment, maybe. But this was something more. As I became aware of the sensation, it became more ethereal, until it was gone. 
like the cotton grass on the slopes that we were walking down, blowing away in the breeze. I couldn't describe the details of the descent to you. I couldn't tell you where my partner was while I was feeling this. I couldn't even tell you what the song was that I was listening to. But once it was finished, I took my headphones off through a sense of shame. I was clouding this beautiful place out. The sensation may have evaporated, but it left behind a sense of calm and satisfaction that I find hard to attain in everyday life. What happened? You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. This idea of the profound in climbing goes back a long way. In 1914, George Mallory wrote an essay for the Climbers Club Journal entitled The Mountaineer as Artist. He argued that there was this arrogant but correct notion in mountaineering which elevated it above other sports in terms of the emotional impact on the artist and the audience. Of the risk-reward game, he said, the only defence of the mountaineering puts it on a higher plane than mere physical sensation. It is exerted that the climber experiences higher emotions. He gets some good for his soul. This is a really common theme in climbing, that somehow rather than just being enjoyable and healthy, it's inherently good for you in a much deeper pursuit of happiness sense. We touched on this with Dave Thomas. And then with Mina Leslie Weastic, I learned a bit more about how top-level climbers, rather than seeking this experience for the sake of it, actually want to use it. I guess I wonder, as we move it from being an art to a science, do we lose a bit of the magic along the way? Mina told me that she'd learned a lot of this practice from Hazel Findlay. So I arranged to meet Hazel to find out more. Hmm. Yeah, so there's actually a lot of academic definitions of flow. Um, and uh, I'm actually currently working with a guy who's writing a book on flow at the moment. And he's got a PhD in flow and he's read almost every academic paper you can read on flow and lots of these academic papers have different definitions of flow and that's why lots of psychologists have shied away from the idea of flow because they don't think it's this thing that we can study because lots of the definitions don't necessarily fit together that kind of contradict each other a little bit um so i think sometimes it is best if you're interested in flow to actually just think about what it means to you which means actually sort of trying to recall flow experiences so for me when I'm personally thinking about what flow is I'll recall some of the times where I've been in the most intense flow states and in those moments sort of they're characterized by this kind of deep focus deep concentration and the kind of automation like your body is moving before you even knew it was going to do what it was doing, right? So from a climbing perspective, it might be just like putting your foot in a place which you, you never would have thought you'd put your foot there or um, you hadn't planned to put your foot there and it just moves there automatically. And I think the main thing for me, how I really know I've had a, a deep flow experience is when the experience ends, either because I've fallen off or got to the top of a route, and this is specific to climbing, obviously, 
I feel really ecstatic. I feel really elated. Um, and I also am kind of amazed, like I'm amazed at what my body has just done. And there's often this sense of that I've done something I couldn't imagine doing, or there was this like creative element, um, or a sense of like pushing past something that I thought I didn't think I was capable of. Like when you come out of those experiences, that the sort of the the joy or the happiness or, or whatever the it's just positive, right? It's a positive experience, and however you want to describe it, and it doesn't just last for the length of time that you're in flow. It for me, if I've had a really strong flow experience climbing, it affects my well-being for like up to weeks afterwards. And usually, it's just days. But it can really affect my well-being in a positive way after I've popped out of that flow state. And I think in some ways, as climbers, we are chasing or looking for, or, or rather, we like climbing because climbing enables us to find those moments. And, and in turn, that affects our well-being. So then we come back to climbing as a thing that we want to do. When we give something a name like this, it can seem to take away a bit of the magic. It can sometimes serve to replace that magic with something else. Talking about flow often sounds like a load of hippie bullshit. It starts to invade every description, every cause, every effect, to the point that it has no meaning anymore and just becomes a byword for expanding consciousness. As they say, the scientific theory that has too much descriptive power ceases to have any meaning. What I learned from being a Leslie Wiastic in the previous episode was this idea of using flow not seeking it for its own sake, but actually using it to increase your performance. But I wanted to get a more scientific perspective. So I went to see clinical psychologist and climbing coach, Dr. Rebecca Williams, to find out more about how this might work in practice. The same areas of your brain light up when you experience flow as when you're kind of doing some kind of meditation. So I think what we'd say is that the meditation creates the same kind of conditions as you'd use to create flow. So you've also got to get things like the challenge level right and all the rest of it. But, you know, if, you, if you're if you actually regularly practicing meditation, that would be a really helpful thing to give you a better chance of experiencing flow. People massively vary on how reactive their nervous systems are, partly sort of temperament, um, partly, guess you know, pre-birth experiences and then life experiences as well, and then your current circumstances. Um, and that just means that hitting that kind of sweet spot is, is a bit more variable for everybody. Yeah, so I think it's often people come and they say, you know, I'm scared to fall. But when you start to unpick it, there's quite a lot of other things underneath that. Um, so an example would be somebody who's scared to fall. Um, they, but actually, they, they don't mind the sensation of falling, but they're really worried about being caught. And there's a kind of trust issue there. Um, for other people, it might be um, the fear of looking stupid. So, you know, like you kind of you get panicked on the wall, you start sort of, uh, you know, crying or getting upset or shouting or whatever. And they find that really embarrassing. There's a kind of social element to it. Um, and that's part of the thing that's driving the fear. So sometimes it looks like a fear of falling, but actually when you unpack it, there's quite a lot of other things going on underneath. This definitely resonated with me. And I explained to Rebecca my own experience. I'm pretty good on bold routes generally. I'm also not someone I would say is afraid of falling. I've taken plenty of falls, but there are specific situations where my head goes to pieces. And sometimes that's just a case of the unexpected, something I'm not prepared for. I wondered what her thoughts were on that. 
I think there's a few things you said there which are quite interesting. And one, it sounds a little bit like being out of control is part of it, you know, like the unexpected, but also that maybe you've got what we'd call like a really narrow sweet spot where you just need enough pressure and no outs to be able to do it, you know, to hit your sort of performance peak. Um, some people have got a really sort of long sweet spot. So they, you know, they can kind of, they a little bit of pressure and they're fine. That's all good, you know, but they can cope with more pressure as well. But for some people it is really narrow and too much and you tip over. But also sometimes not having enough to think about also means that you don't quite um, get to that sweet performance sort of spot. So if you haven't got enough to think about, sometimes there's more room in your head for sort of feeling nervous and anxious and getting caught up in those thoughts. The performance arousal curve is how we set, you know, describe it. So it's it's often described as this kind of bell curve, you know, um, and then that, that sweet spot is where you, you're, you've got enough kind of arousal in your nervous system, enough kind of oomph to pull it out of the bag in terms of performance. What I've often found, though, is that people tend to, it doesn't doesn't kind of tail off, performance doesn't tail off in this nice way, it actually tends to go catastrophically wrong, you know. So if you miss that sweet spot, you get too pressured, too, you know, too, just too anxious, too nervous, um, then you kind of get this dramatic falling off of performance and panic attack or, you know, everything goes kind of wrong or people really regress in terms of their technical ability and, and so on. But, I mean, in terms of flow, what you're looking for is that the challenge equals your skill level. So I guess that would be part of the performance curve. But you're also looking at, like, really um, kind of honed in concentration so that you're absolutely in the moment so I think you could have a kind of hit in the sweet spot and that might be associated with flow but you can also have flow if you're absolutely in the moment and doing something that's the right level of challenge for you but you may be able to do more than that as well if you see what I mean so it's not necessarily your peak performance but it often feels like that yeah, and I think that's where climbers often go wrong because they just think about grades, you know, and that being the level of challenge without realising that maybe, you know, you're going to a new crag, you're with a new um, B-lane partner, it's a different day, you know, you've got a lot going on in your life. There's lots of other factors to consider when you think about getting the performance just right other than just the grade of the route. Not first memory, no, because I started climbing when I was like six or seven, so... I, I, I think I was finding flow from a really young age in climbing because although my dad got me into climbing he, my parents were divorced and I didn't see him that often so I used to spend a lot of time climbing on my own and I used to make up problems for myself and I don't know if a kid can be entertained enough on their own if they're not finding flow and I think kids are actually really good at finding flow as well because it's easier for them to use climbing as a form of play and um, I think with a playful attitude, you have a more find flow easier. And so often kids find flow easier for that reason because they see things more as play. The thing is, when I climbed as a kid, I, I, I climbed with my dad and um, he did push me, but I didn't really feel like there were expectations there. I think when you're a kid, you can always just be like, well, I'm a kid, <laughs> you know, like things are different for me. I think there's something interesting that happens between being a kid and being an adult where that tolerance for failure really, you know, disappears. So I was looking at, you know, my uh, two and a half year old who's learning all sorts of new things at the moment. And if he can't do something, you know, he just keeps at it until he can do it. And the, the failure is not, it doesn't put him off. It just seems to make him more determined. But there's something that happens during that growing up process where we like to be able to do things easily 
And I kind of feel as well that, again, modern life is particularly pulling us in that direction. You know, it's all about the finished product kind of thing rather than the hard graft that gets you there. And I think at his age, he doesn't yet experience shame. Um, He's just at that point where probably in the next year or so, he will start to realise there's a kind of social judgment about what he does and doesn't do. At the moment, it's really difficult because you can't motivate him socially at all. (laughs) He's not bothered whether we say well done or not. You know, he's more bothered about the mastery. But at some point that shifts and we become much more aware of of the social dynamics, you know, and... And then you've got shame that comes in. And I think that's an inhibitor for people. I think adults are quite bad at taking risks in many ways and, and in a risk of not getting up something. You know, you see that at the wall. Most people are succeeding all the time. So, But again, we're all different, aren't we? And I think what they would say is what separates out kind of the elite athletes from, you know, some of the non-elite would be literally that ability to to keep going for a year on the set, working on the same skill, you know, to to have that resilience and ability to swallow all those failures the more they fail the more it motivates them and that's interesting in and of itself because I think that can make you very very single-minded which is great in terms of mastery of a skill um, but maybe makes you slightly more difficult to be around sometimes in a social sense (laughs) this idea of the shame response as a learned thing I thought was intriguing especially in the context of something Dave Thomas told me about soloing kinky boots at Baggy Point I can't describe it. As soon as I pulled onto the rock, it was like I just started climbing with this freedom. So it was like I'd I'd stepped into my own world. Something about it took away. It made it all about my own experience, feeling at peace with the rock, feeling close to the rock, took away from the situation any hint of it being about a test. If I was willing to, to make that committed step, I could go to a place where I could experience myself. It was almost like going back to a place that somehow I'd lost touch with. It's in your head usually, right? So it's just a fear of what other people think, essentially. And a lot of the time, the people that you think are judging you aren't judging you at all. But we're just such social creatures, right? And we really care about our status and what people think of us. And people put a lot of their own self-worth in climbing, you know? It's like, if I can't do this route, then what does that say about me? And these are kind of, it's not useful thinking at all, but it's, it's, it's how we're conditioned to think, really. And, but yeah, fear of what other people think is, is a big distraction for climbers. I struggle myself and a lot of it's like oh they might know who I am and if they see me fall off this what they're going to think and you know that kind of thing but I think we there's there's actually so people who aren't worried what others think are, are in the minority for sure and I'm jealous of those people because they probably are a lot happier than all the rest of us who are worried about what everyone thinks. <laughs> The legendary US climber, Doug Robinson, wrote a response to Mallory in 1969. In The Climber as Visionary, he described the sensory desert of the climb. There's this curious juxtaposition at the heart of everything I've learned about flow states. It's summed up by Leo Holding in Hard Grit. You become akin to it, you know, you just, you concentrate on staying relaxed, which is a contradiction. But at the end of it, you don't need to concentrate on relaxing, you just relax and then you just get on with it. It's a weird idea to become hyper-aware. 
totally absorbed, but actually completely oblivious to everything else around you. For Robinson, this experience is intense, but the joy comes from being ejected from it, hitting the belay or the final jug and recognising what you've just experienced. Flow is more than idle dreaming, he says. It's seeing with more intensity what's already in front of you. The hardest route I've ever done is a trad route called Magic Line that I did last year. And there were sections of that route where I was in flow. And that, the last part of the route especially is really memorable. I sort of grabbed the final jug of this route and just sort of was like, oh, I don't even know what happened, right? It's like, it's almost a shame in some ways because when you're in deep flow, you can't even recall what happens. It's like you, you're so immersed in the moment that it doesn't get banked in your memory the same way. <laughs> so it's almost like it didn't happen. But I definitely popped out of that being like, whoa, you know, we can get challenged on routes because we have to pull as hard as we can or because we need to be as fit as we possibly can. But Magic Line was so technical from a movement perspective is that you couldn't just be fit or strong enough. You, you have to move just right. Like anything that's slightly wrong and you just be spat off. So it just demanded so much so when you're in flow, you don't need to do any mental management at all. You're in flow and that's, sort of, that's kind of the end goal of mental training, right? You're in the right space to perform at your best. And you also, you don't have this kind of third person perspective that you often have. You, you're just so immersed in the moment, you can't step out and go like, oh, I'm in flow. If you're thinking, oh, I'm in flow, isn't this great? and start thinking about flow, you're not in flow, <laughs> you know? But if you're just watching your hands move in certain ways, and then, then you're in flow. But if you're not in flow, you, and you notice you're distracting, you're distracted, you can do some, the mindfulness tool, tools are to, essentially it's like, um, when we're in thought or we're distracted, we tend to be thinking about something in the past or in the future. And that's why it's distracting. We're not in the present moment. But the sensation we get from our sensory feedback is present. So like if you focus on your breath, you can't focus on a breath that happened like two breaths ago. Or you can't focus on a breath that hasn't happened yet. You can only connect to your breathing right here and now. And that's why it works to help focus your attention in the present moment. Because if you're really connected to your breath or you're really looking at a bit of the rock, then you can't be thinking about anything else at the same time. Your brain is full of doing that instead of thinking about how you want to do the route or thinking about where you fell off last time or all these other distracting ways, um, uh, places our mind goes to. So for, for Magic Line, I, I was always working on my mindset but that was done kind of away, not necessarily away for the, from the crag, but I wouldn't, so sort of mindset I consider to be like a general outlook um, that kind of dictates um, a lot of your decision-making and it's where we get our motivation from and, and how we approach challenge and that kind of thing. So like it was really general, broad, um, and I needed to make sure my mindset was really good for that route. So I, so learning from other projects where I've been too distracted by the goal, too distracted by kind of the end result. I 
I basically constantly had to work on my mindset to to remind myself of why I was there. I wasn't there to send the route. I was there to engage in a process of learning and development as a climber and enjoyment and maybe finding flow and um and so yeah just essentially kind of like staying in the process and not being distracted by the end so there's a lot of work mentally and a lot of it's just reminded myself of things I already know but it's really easy to forget um and then when I was actually climbing um I mostly just use mindfulness tools to make sure I stay focused so instead of I think thought is the just most distracting thing whilst we're climbing. So just noticing thoughts come up and then coming back to the present moment with a series of different mindfulness tools. So an example would just be um, coming back to the sensation of breathing in your body or something. Or one, one I do that's really quick is I just zoom in visually on a piece of the rock and just kind of like really look at the piece of rock. Um, and that can that's a really powerful and quick tool to like bring you back into the present moment. Like I might tune into the, the sort of muscles in my body. So like, are they relaxed enough? Like that's a nice one to do at a rest. We hold too much tension sometimes when we're climbing or we over grip. So kind of like actually just putting you, your focus on the sensations and feedback you're getting from your body to make sure you're kind of relaxed enough. That's, that's really important for sport climbing. I climbed it well enough to be efficient, but I could have been more focused. And then you get to a rest. And on that rest, I wasn't in flow anymore. Um, it, it was so, so I think there's like you on a rest, there's two options. You can sort of let your mind wander a bit. You can engage in kind of some positive dialogue or kind of come back to your mindset. So Hazel made it to this rest point three times before she managed the route and it's a mixture of mistakes and nerves that saw her fall off in the first attempts. It required so much mental management not to just kind of freak out and get all shaky and nervous because you've got this final boulder problem before you can get to the top and so you know that men mental management would sometimes look like you know why are you here Hazel these these are the moments you go climbing for you know, don't wish this moment away because that's the thing, right? It's like as climbers, we want to challenge ourselves and put ourselves in these challenging experiences. But then sometimes we become a bit averse when we're in it. We want it to be over already. But it's like, no, this is why I climb. It's for these moments. That's why I go climbing. So sort of coming back to that kind of thinking and then refocusing. So it's sort of like if you're going to let yourself get out of flow, you need to then do something to refocus even positive thinking is distracting people definitely get wrong and I see talked about a lot is this like oh well if I just think positive thought that's going to be really useful but I don't know if you've ever experienced this but you can get near the top of a route and be like oh yes I'm doing it and as soon as you think that you're not focused on the climbing anymore and your foot pops or you reach wrong or you just make a wrong move so even positive thinking can be distracted when we're climbing. To climb our best, we want to have an empty mind and just be focused on the feedback from our body. So if you're going to let yourself get out of flow, it's best to do something to refocus. So every time I'd leave that rest, I would do some of the mindfulness things like looking at a piece of rock or really connect to my breathing. Because the, sort of the, the mindfulness, the presence can be like a good 
precursor to flow. It's sort of like, I may not be in flow when I'm mindful, but I'm at least present. On the top crux of Magic Line, I was in flow and it's actually really hard for me to recall the moments I was doing it, which in some ways makes it sad because obviously you can't kind of revisit very easily as a memory. But it's, it's strange because flows often often feels effortless, but we're doing something that's actually really difficult for us as well. So there's we're sort of in this like paradox state where it sort of feels automatic in one part of your brain, but then there's all this effort as well. And so that's sort of how it felt. Our default state for our minds usually is to be distracted. We're constantly just thinking and churning things around in our minds all the time. And those moments when we're climbing and we're actually in flow and we're completely absorbed in what we're doing, the reason we feel so good afterwards is because for those moments, our mind wasn't just churning around in thought. And so whether you send or you don't send, um, you're still going to be going back to a distracted mind. It's just that one might feel a little bit happier than the other one, right? The real memory comes from that bubble breaking. So when I grabbed the jug and I knew I didn't need to be in flow anymore because um, there's only just a few juggy moves to the anchors, it was then that the, the real memory starts of just like, oh, wow, like I did it and that was an amazing experience and you sort of pop out of this flow experience feeling really elated. I talked in Ben Bransby's episodes about echoes and what's so interesting to me about interviewing climbers is how consistently their experiences overlap in unexpected ways and that can be the big picture or sometimes just the minor details. It's that intense memory of happiness or satisfaction without being able to describe the intricate detail of the moment. It's Mina's fear of being centre stage at Malham, which Hazel echoes, and learning to control her reaction to it, contrasted with Dave Thomas's desire to place himself in the midst on Lord of the Flies, regardless of judgement from the climbing community. Dave was avoiding a different kind of judgement, and dealing with it using a deeper kind of distraction than the one we all revert to. When Mallory talked of the artist, he meant both the observer and the observed. What he didn't acknowledge was that he was the critic. In 1936, Francis' young husband reflected on Mallory's ill-fated Everest attempt, that after two failed attempts, there was no question in Mallory's mind that a third was demanded. It was the natural conclusion to the story, and Mallory was 37. He felt he wouldn't get another opportunity. The risk that Mallory was taking may have been physical, but the risk he was avoiding was psychological. It was to fail in the goal he'd so publicly set out to achieve. To walk away would simply mean to return again. It may as well be now. For me on that one, it was I did it on the last day of the trip, on the last attempt of the day. So I knew I'd be my, my coming the coming years would be looking very different <laughs> if I hadn't done it. Whether you whether you see ride it through to the end and you send your route. The end is the end is some in some ways just still the same. You're still going back to a distracted mind. So when you do something, you don't actually gain anything. You know what I mean, all you can really say is that you've done it, right? It's like 
from an experiential perspective, you've not, you've not, it's not like you get to hold anything. I mean, in a competition, I suppose you get to hold the medal and you win the prize. But when we finish a project outdoors, we don't gain anything. Like we just finished what was a process. At the end of The Mountaineer is Artist, Mallory wrote, Many people, it appears, have strange dreamlands where they're more accustomed to wander at ease, where no dull brain perplexes and retards, nor tired body and heavy limbs, but where the whole emotional being flows unrestrained and unencumbered. It knows not whither, like a stream rippling happily in its sandy bed, careless towards the infinite. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.